Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of some of the most iconic sites, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Well, our desire and purpose is to provide insight for today and hope for the future as we look at history from a biblical worldview and uncover the hidden lessons of our past. Well, this is Aaron Kronk, your host on Behind the Tour, and today we are focusing on the season of Christmas that we're in, remembering and celebrating the advent of our Savior and King. We'll touch on some historical events today uh, that took place in the U.S. on Christmas Day and talk about some of the Christmas traditions and celebrations that take place at different destinations that we tour. Well, today I am joined by Jay Prophet, one of our education program leaders and also administrative staff at American Christian Tours. Welcome, Jay. Hey, Aaron. It's really good to be with you. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast again. Oh, totally, Jay. I'm just I'm so happy that you're here. Your knowledge is always amazing to me. I've been on tour with you a number of times and gotten to experience firsthand the, the wealth of knowledge that you have about uh, about God's Word and about American history. So i uh, looking forward to our, our uh, talk today. Yeah, it'll be fun. I definitely love history, and I definitely love Christmas. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's uh, two things that I like to uh, think about and talk about. That's, that's probably a good jumping off point here with Christmas season. And just thinking about, uh, this, this is one of my, my favorite times of the year, but I have to think about why, you know, why is it? Um, let me ask you a question. What's uh, one of your favorite parts of the Christmas season? You know, I think it always starts off just the excitement of uh, getting everything ready. I know my kids get really excited putting up decorations in the tree and everybody's talking about, you know, Christmas programs and presents and all that. But in the middle of all that, I feel like all of a sudden it kind of, you're, you're caught with like, you know, all this stuff I'm doing. And then I'm like drawn into like, again, the story of yeah. the birth of Christ. And it's been really nice because at our church, we do a live nativity. This year, my children were finally old enough to have legitimate parts. Right. And that became my favorite part so far of this Christmas season. Really, honestly, I would say just the birth of Christ, focusing on that. And we try hard in our, in our home to keep up with the Advent and go through the different readings and devotions. Just being part together with family doing that, I think is my favorite part. Yeah. Jay, that's awesome. And, and me too. I really feel like, uh, you know, the, the, the time with family is wonderful. It's that, that focus that uh, I guess the older I get, the more I, I'm able to, to focus on just the importance of God stepping into uh, history, uh, coming to save us from our sins. Um, he yeah. made flesh, uh, God with us, Emmanuel. And so it's not just the symbolism, it, it is, it's the reality of what God has done for us uh, and to remember and celebrate that this time of year. Absolutely. Uh, let's hop into our first segment here and talk about some historical events that happened on Christmas Eve, or I guess even on Christmas Day, kind of the, the time surrounding the, the 24th and 25th 
of December in American history. So our first one is General George Washington in the Continental Army uh, crossing the Delaware River on December 25th and 26th. It was really uh, kind of both days, wasn't it? Because they had to get their forces across the right. Delaware River. And Jay, I just think, um, and I'm going to let you hop in here, but I just think of, you know, a year later, uh, they're in Valley Forge. They're, you know, 1777, they're in Valley Forge, and it was it was a rough, rough winter for George Washington and all of his soldiers. But as we think about December 25th, Christmas Day in 1776, why don't you give a, a little bit of a little bit of that history for our listeners? What I'm really struck with is the American forces had a, a really challenging time. I mean, they are they're up against the British Army, which is probably one of the most powerful armies in the world at that time. And a lot of these guys volunteered or signed up. They loved their country. They were constantly, you know, being chased around by the British. And then God would show up and give them, you know, great victories. When people read the whole story of the revolution, and they also pay attention to Washington and how he he was asking God for help. I mean, this this was a common thing. He was really interested in trying to attack this garrison in New Jersey at Trenton. It had about 1,400 um, Hessian soldiers. So a lot of people, you know, in our country, when you say Hessian soldiers, they may not know what that is. Back during the revolution, the Hessian soldiers, they were German soldiers. They weren't really mercenaries they were auxiliaries so they were actually hired by the british government from germany and they came over to help the british fight there were about thirty thousand of them that fought um, during the revolutionary war that was about a quarter of quote-unquote the british troops that were here they were in this garrison in the town of trenton and Washington felt if he could surprise attack them, that it would really bolster the morale in his army. And it would also encourage more men to come and join the Continental Army in the coming year. Yeah, Jay, and I think of uh, the American Army was at that point was really made up of citizen volunteers, right, who mm -hmm. they would enlist yep. for a year at a time. Um, so now uh, I think, you know, it's at the end of December. Um, after the first really major year of, of the, uh, the War for Independence. Uh, and most of the men's one-year enlistments were going to be up. Uh, so I can't help but think just the low morale, uh, the low re-enlistments, Washington's army kind of dwindling, <laughs> and uh, yeah. maybe him thinking about that defeat, uh, almost inevitable defeat by the, by the British would kind of destroy all of the remaining hope. He and his uh, councils, they came up with this plan to attack um, Christmas night. There was going to be three different groups crossing the Delaware River. One group, 1,800, had another group that was going to be about 800. Then Washington and his 2,400 soldiers were going to cross about 10 miles north of Trenton and then march down to surprise the Hessians. And it was a pretty ambitious plan. I mean, even experienced troops and, you know, well-rested ones would have had a really difficult time. And 
to make it even more difficult, the river uh, was pretty filled with ice. Jay, the, uh, the American troops, as they were crossing the Delaware River, um, a violent storm came up. I wrote a couple accounts that, that uh, soldiers had yeah. kept that this ha- kind of a hailstorm or a storm began, um, but that it ultimately worked in favor uh, for them because it reduced um, the visibility uh, for the, uh, the Hessians and the, and the British soldiers. There had been a couple deserters that had gone over to the British side and had mentioned that there was an attack that was going to be taking place. So the Hessians, they were aware that there was possibly, you know, some attack planned. But when they saw this storm, and one soldier said it was like a hurricane, snow and sleet was lashing, you know, them as they crossed. When they saw this storm, the Hessians kind of wrote off any, uh, you know, attack because there's... They, there was no way they thought that they would um, do this. But they use these these shallow boats that are called Durham boats, and they are basically made to move like iron ore and bulk items down to like Philadelphia. So they were they're really flat and they had high walls on the sides of them. They filled those things up, man. They Washington had all the men and I they think they basically stood during the crossing. And they also had brought with um, a lot of cannon. Uh, I think they brought like 18 cannon over the river. And some of them weighed like almost 2,000 pounds. So it took them like three hours to actually cross the river. And the other two groups crossing weren't able to make it across. So it was just Washington's group. Yeah, Jay. And I think of God's providence too, because we always want to point to the fact that, um, you know, God was orchestrating all the details. Uh, and he wants, you know, he wants us to listen to him. And I think George Washington was a man, uh, by his own writings, that really sought uh, God on, in, on so many different levels through prayer and uh, wanted to honor him. So I know that it certainly wasn't a mistake that George Washington was there on December uh, 25th um, and 26th, because as they, they chose the early morning of December 26th to attack he, he knew that the German custom of drinking <laughs> on Christmas would also help assure uh, them, them having yeah. some serious sleep that night and being more susceptible to attack in the morning. They, they were successful. I mean, they totally surprised them. They were able to uh, surround the town. They had cannon aimed down the streets. And basically, they captured a thousand of the Hessian soldiers a um, hundred of them were wounded, and then there were 20 uh, that were killed. Uh, so it was a big event, and I I know a lot of people have seen the painting of the crossing of the Delaware. Something kind of interesting, too, Aaron, is to think of some of the people that crossed over with Washington, people like James Monroe, who became uh, a U.S. president, and John Marshall, who became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of the Treasury. And I always think it's kind of interesting because you hear about these guys during the Revolution, and then they all become like, you know, big players in our new government. But they all fought together. So you can imagine the camaraderie, you know, like they went through this whole revolution together fighting side by side and then they went right into the creation of our government and i think there was probably a lot of um, good friendships out of that 
Sure. And that's, that's kind of another great point to think about that through that adversity and really, really hard days in the, the what, the eight, the eight years of the Revolutionary War, um, those relationships that were forged and even the character that was forged. And, and Jay, so many of these guys, they had a relationship with God. You know, my readings uh, would indicate that there were so many of these guys that had a deep relationship with, with God. And, you know, these rela- relationships with each other were strengthened uh, amazingly during this time and a preparation for the character of these men uh, as the country moved forward. We can move on to the next event. You know, the so the Revolutionary War ends, right? And then shortly after it, really, not too long after it, uh, we're fighting right. in the War of 1812 with the British. Finally, after all this fighting, they had a big event that took place on December 24th, which is Christmas Eve. And that was the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. Yeah, Ghent? Jay, that, uh, Ghent is in Belgium. <laughs> I've actually been to Belgium and to Ghent. So it's okay. uh, they, they uh, pronounce it a little differently when you're over there. So I had to kind of figure that one out. But uh, yeah, so both sides signed the Treaty of Ghent, um, the Americans and the British on December 24th. But uh, the, the war didn't uh, didn't come to a close just then, did it, Jay? No, because they had, I mean, it had to be formally ratified by the government. So that would come like a couple months later in February of 1815. It was pretty amazing. I mean, it, it, the treaty released all the prisoners and um, just restored all the captured lands and the ships, you know, that had taken place between the United States and Britain. And Aaron, um, the land that you are from, uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, um, that was returned to the United States, um, about 10 million acres of territory around Lake Superior, Michigan. And Jay, if I remember right, that was kind of pre pre pre-war, right? Pre 1812 territory anyway, wasn't it? It was disputed during, uh, you know, from December, from uh, 1812 to 1814. Um, correct in saying that, that that was, that everything kind of went back to pre, pre-war um, territory. Yeah. And then because during the war, America had gone up into like Canada and they were occupying, you know, right. what now is Ontario. That was all given back after the treaty. Um, and then I don't know, some of our listeners maybe listened to our podcast on St. Augustine, but we were talking about, you know, how there was like the the british east florida and spanish west florida and um the americans basically had taken over um all of that area during the war of 1812 and after the treaty they only returned pensacola to spanish florida yeah and something significant jay during this period of time you know we talk about this again this you know during the the christmas time when this treaty was signed but uh you know in 1814 also uh something significant happened that would affect the the library of congress there was a library of congress that john adams started in 1800 and um in 1812 uh, the British set, I'm sorry, in 1814, actually, the British set the Capitol uh, building on fire and a good portion of that library burned. It was a huge deal because the people back in England 
uh, when they heard that the British had burned a library, they were furious because uh, the British actually, the, the soldiers piled all the books outside on the yard and they lit them all on fire. And the British people, when they heard about this, they thought their soldiers were barbarians for burning yeah, the library. Yeah, and that was, it was incredible because, I mean, we think of the, the modern day Library of Congress that's in Washington, D.C., that now has three buildings to it. Uh, but it came from humble beginnings out of a desire for, uh, you know, Congress to have something that they could resource and reference um, within the context of a lot of different genres of, of, of literature and reading. After the British burned the library, then what happened to it? Well, the British burned the library and then Thomas Jefferson. So this is, you got to think this is 1814. Thomas Jefferson uh, was president from 1801 to 1809. So now we have um, James Madison as president. Well, Thomas Jefferson steps up and he offers to sell uh, Congress his library of about 60, I think it's around what, 6,200 books about that uh, for 20 some thousand dollars. And um, they, they okayed that. So he, he was kind of instrumental in keeping the Library of Congress going and uh, reestablishing it um, to what it ultimately would become uh, today. But now you're talking about another fire and this one um, was on December 24th in 1851. So now the library right. was restarted in the Capitol building and um, they had all these books that now had belonged to Thomas Jefferson that were in there. Uh, it was at night and one of the representatives was leaving and he looked over and he saw kind of a suspicious light up in the window by the library um, and he notified a, a police officer and the police officer didn't have a key <laughs> so and kind of dismissed the concern uh that this congressman which was edward everett yeah, that name rings a bell um, sure yes from gettysburg he he spoke at the big gettysburg dedication before right um abraham lincoln um so then what happens well yeah so jay we're talking about the, yeah the second second fire that uh, I guess it was probably even, I don't know, equal to or a larger fire. And this, I guess it was, I guess they say it was the largest fire in the library's history and it destroyed 35,000 books, about two thirds of the library's 55,000 book collection, uh, including a good portion, almost two thirds of Jefferson's original uh, book collection. Uh, it, it just, I love Jay still going into the Library of Congress called the Jefferson Building, the oldest building, and still being able to see uh, a, a good portion of the books that Thomas Jefferson uh, sold to the Library of Congress. Yeah. Well, and I know um, that that um, Congressman uh, Everett, he uh, he actually came running back because of the glow kept growing. And they say that he and also Daniel Webster, who was a representative, and Sam Houston, the three of them came running back to the Capitol. Because a lot of these guys lived near the Capitol. And they helped uh, put out the blaze. And they said that the firefighters determined that it was an unattended candle. 
So uh, if you guys have little candles in your house, make sure you put them out. Make sure, sure they're attended, right? Well, I would imagine there was a lot of unattended open flame uh, candles back in the day. Well, so, so uh, yeah, so Congress, they, they quickly um, appropriated uh, another good chunk of money, 160 some thousand dollars to replace the lost book. So, you know, Jay, that really just tells me that they, they uh, again, in God's providence, that they, they, they kept um, the focus on education and they kept the focus on learning and something that was there for um, the Congress and they reestablished that uh, pretty quickly. Um, two years later, they had built um, a room uh, or refurbished the room that was set on fire or that was on fire. And uh, from what, I, again, from what I've read, they said it was just a beautiful room. Uh, it was just gorgeous and it was uh, increased in capacity. So Something bad uh, can turn out for something good. Now, Aaron, um, I don't want to reveal our ages, but I, I mean, I don't mind. I'll, I'll tell people. I was born in 1965, and you were born uh, a few years after that. In Yeah, Jay, I was born in 1968. Uh, okay. for, for those listeners that are in their teens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, actually, I... I probably remember a little bit more of, of this time period than you do. I don't know. But I remember as a little child, um, probably when I was like four, uh, five, I, I watched one of the uh, launchings of the astronauts into space um, during the, you know, Apollo program. And I remember I just have images, you know, on my black on our black and white TV, you know, watching them take off and also watching them come back and you know they'd land their capsule would come in the water and all these frogmen would swim out to get the astronauts and they they didn't know if they had any like diseases so they'd like put them in confinement for like a few days and all that kind of stuff but our next story um is a space story so what what's that one about yeah jay it's the apollo 8 um and uh, they called it Christmas at the Moon. So on Christmas Eve in 1968, uh, which really was a quite quite a year, um, not that I remember, because uh, even on Christmas Eve of 1968, when uh, this event happened, I was about 11 days old. <laughs> so I was still keeping a diary at that point, Jay, and uh, yeah. you know, still kind of tired from the move. But uh, <clears throat> Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated. Um, all kinds of rioting. Uh, Bobby because, Kennedy assassinated. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen footage of the big Chicago Democratic Convention. They had yep. big riots there and the police were protesters. Yeah. It was a rough period of time. It was it was a hard year. But at the end of the year here, we have uh, Apollo 8 astronauts, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, uh, Bill Anders. Uh, they became the first humans to orbit the moon. So at their command module, or as their command module floated above the, uh, the lunar surface, the, the astronauts beamed back images of the moon and Earth and took turns reading from the book of Genesis, which, Jay, I think is totally amazing, uh, in closing with a, with a wish for everyone, in quotes, on the good Earth. They were told that when they were up there on Christmas Eve, that they were going to have, um, they were going to be, rec you know, recording a message to the earth. Mm -hmm. 
and that it was going to be beamed all over the world. This was the only instruction they got from NASA, is to think of something appropriate to say. This was like beamed, you know, all over different countries all over the world. And the embassies of America all over the world were showing uh, this on televisions, like kind of in windows of the embassies. So like people in other countries were even coming up to the window and kind of watching, you know, the TV. This is like a big deal. And they estimate that like uh, over a billion people from like 64 different countries watch this. So, um, yeah, you said they they picked um, a reading from Genesis. Yeah, Jay, they, they picked it was the first 10 verses of Genesis. Um, and the, um, so, yeah, the, just the fact that they that they read that and I'm not sure which which one of the guys picked it. Um, but as they read that to, like you said, over a billion people that, that heard that, I can't help but think that sort again, God's providence that he <laughs> allowed oh, yeah. that many people to hear in the beginning, you know, God created. Yeah, the heavens. It's, it's amazing. Um, I, sadly, I'm not sure if we would hear that today. Um, but, you know, just to hear God's word um, read from space and then being beamed to like, you know, 64 countries and billions of people, yeah. just an amazing thing. And yeah. They ended it from the crew of Apollo 8. We close with good night, good luck, Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you, like you said, on the good earth. Yeah. So that's, a, that's a pretty cool story. Yeah, absolutely. On the eve, so Apollo 8, Christmas at the moon, uh, Christmas yeah. Eve, Christmas uh, Eve, 1968. Well, it's time for this next segment uh, called Behind the Traditions. And uh, we're going to chat just uh, for a few minutes about historic Christmas traditions in America that uh, some of the places that we visit on tour. So, Jay, uh, what's what's the first one? My pick would be Arlington National Cemetery. And I'm picking that because I feel like pretty much all of our groups go to Arlington yeah. National Cemetery that visit Washington, D.C. So it's a very popular, very common place to visit in the sense of going there, but not common in what you're seeing. I mean, you're witnessing the grave sites of half a million, basically, American soldiers that served our country, gave their lives, many of them fighting for our country. Uh, so it's a really special place. We want to talk about a Christmas tradition there. And I think some of our listeners maybe have seen this, but wreaths across America is what it's called. Back in 1992, there was a wreath company that was up in Maine, and they found themselves with a supply of wreaths. And the guy who owned it, his name was Moral Worcester. When he was 12 years old, he was a paper boy, and he won a trip to Washington, D.C. It's kind of neat because a lot of the kids that we take on tour, they're kind of in that you know, 12 to 14, 15, 16-year-old uh, age range. But his trip to our nation's capital was one that he would never forget, and Arlington Cemetery really made a huge impression on him. And you know, he kind of thought about that a lot throughout his life. Well, when he found out that he had all these surplus wreaths, he remembered that experience and he thought, I could make arrangements maybe to place these wreaths 
uh, in one of the sections of the cemetery. So he contacted his senator and uh, made arrangements. And that's how Reeves Across America got started. Yeah, Jay, I've been to the cemetery uh, during this period of time where they lay the wreaths at all. There's over 400,000 of them at this cemetery. But this this tradition now has gone uh, outside of just Arlington National Cemetery, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. And it it's really based on people donating their time and wreaths and, you know, money to get wreaths. And uh, it, I have a personal connection with this because my, uh, my daughter is part of American Heritage Girls and my son is part of Trail Life and they're both right, yeah. Christian organizations where they kind of like scouting activities. Two years ago, we did this here in the town that we live in. There's an old national cemetery. And it's kind of interesting because we live in Virginia and a lot of the people buried in the National Cemetery are Civil War soldiers from up mm -hmm. north. Like you'll see grave sites of guys from Massachusetts and, you know, Pennsylvania and places like that. But we gather there and there's a big couple big trailers come in with wreaths and uh, volunteers. You know, we just spread out through the cemetery. Every stone gets a wreath placed at it. While you're doing it, all of a sudden you're just you're remembering the soldiers who gave their lives. You're honoring them by doing this. Also, while you're doing it, you're you're talking to your children and you're you're sharing with what it means to be a soldier. What are veterans? You know, just the price and the value of freedom. So, and that's actually the three main things that Reese Across America is pushing: is you know, remember, honor, and yeah. teach. It's a pretty cool Christmas tradition. Well, Jay, that's amazing. It really is. Uh, and I can think of, since you know we're in and around Washington, D.C., uh, I can think of another one, the National Christmas Tree at the President's Park. Uh, it's the ellipse that is just south of the White House. Could right. you, you tell our listeners a little bit about that one? I've been fortunate also to, to go to the, um, the ellipse for the National Christmas Tree lighting. But it happened. It started way back in 1923 with Calvin Coolidge. The city of Washington, prior to that, there had been a lot of decorating going on around at Christmas time, and someone came up with the idea that it would be neat for the White House to have some sort of a tree that they decorate. The early trees were brought in, just set up a tree and decorated it. But it was also kind of that time period where electric lights were really, you know, coming in strong, and so. You had these companies that uh, were donating, you know, the, the lights and it kind of became this big tradition. And but then they came up with the idea to act, plant a tree. And it was kind of crazy because they the first couple of years, they'd actually go down along the George Washington Parkway and they dig up a, a pine tree, drive it up to Washington and plant it on the ellipse have the big ceremony and then they dig it up again and then go bring it back. And they did that a couple of years, but then finally they went back to just bringing in a tree and uh, it kind of became controversial back in like the seventies. People were like, you know, this is kind of a waste of these big trees. And so then it was planting again and they've actually had about five or six different trees. And most recently, like, I don't know if you remember Aaron, but a few years ago, a big storm came through D.C. and the national Christmas tree broke in half. And so the last tree to be planted there was in 2019. And it was a 30-year-old 
a blue spruce tree uh, from Pennsylvania that was planted there. But it's a big deal. I mean, they they plant they have trees from all the fifty states and territories around the base of it, and they have decorations from all those states. And then the trees all decorated, and uh, they also have a nativity scene that you can see nearby. There's a model train set up underneath. But then they have a big ceremony the early December where the president and first lady and uh, they come out and there's music and there's, you know, some special speakers and then they hit the switch and boom, the whole thing lights up and it's pretty, it's really pretty. Well, Jay, I know that, uh, yeah, that is, thanks. That is uh, actually pretty cool. And I know there's, there's one other in DC that the Capitol Christmas tree at the U S Capitol, and it was a tradition of, it's called the people's tree started in 1964 when the speaker of the house uh you the house of representatives placed a live christmas tree on the capitol lawn and it lived for three years before giving up its roots to uh to wind and uh, to some other damage but this is kind of a neat idea for this one and i think you you know this too but now they have the the u.s forest service every year provides a christmas tree from one of the national forests um, so it's kind of a big deal. You know, they pick a national forest somewhere that they find a tree. So this year's tree is from where, Aaron? Uh, well, this year's tree is a white fir tree named Sugar Bear. <laughs> and it's uh, 84 feet yeah. tall. And it comes from uh, Six Rivers National Forest in California. And, uh, you know, Jay, this just reminds me again, you know, symbolism. There's so much symbolism Um this all over our, our, our uh, country within the context of American history, but also there's so much biblical history too, and that there's nothing without meaning uh, in the thought that goes into so many things of our heritage and our, our godly foundations. Uh, even today, Jay, there's, there's just still so much, but what a, what a cool, I don't know, what a cool idea uh, to bring in a tree from different yeah, national is. forests. Well, and then we, we won't get into big discussions about the following, but we just wanted to mention a couple of other places that we go on tour that have some fun uh, Christmas traditions. Uh, one of them is Mount Vernon, and they do a big uh, Christmas illumination. They have a camel they bring in for the month of December. They have uh, special carolers going around. They have George and Martha come out on the portico, and they talk to people and I, george washington did yeah. love christmas um if you read about it well and he loved he loved christmas time and he loved his home uh, it was it's very evident that uh, yeah. Yeah. uh in fact jay just a real quick note you know that when um from the time that he got uh, elected as commander in chief of the Continental Army in 1775 to six years later uh, to 1781 um, at the uh, the Battle of Yorktown, where uh, the British were defeated, uh, he'd only been home once. He'd only been home to where he, he he loved to go home, but he, for the love of his country and his soldiers to be with them, uh, gave up that uh, home comfort to be with them. So I thought that was a kind of an interesting little side note. Oh yeah, absolutely. So then um, we haven't uh, been up to New York much this past year. It's pretty yeah. shut down still, but one of the big uh, highlights of Christmas in New York City is the big Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. 
Um, many people have seen that on television or if you've watched movies like Home Alone, Lost in New York or some of those. And a real quick on that, how did that get started? Well, uh, apparently workers at the Rockefeller Center uh, pooled their money together uh, to buy a Christmas tree. And the men decorated a 20 foot high balsam fir uh, with handmade garlands made by their families. And I think that was during it the was, Depression yeah. when they did that, like yep. the 1930s. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. But they do bring in a big tree now every year. And I think this one, uh, this year, the tree is coming from Maryland. Another place that we go on tour that they do a kind of a big deal uh, at Christmas time, they have a big grand illumination in Colonial Williamsburg. And Aaron, you've been down to Williamsburg many times. Have you ever been down there for the Christmas? I have, Jay, and it's just—it's actually amazing. Uh, in the past years that they've done it, all the all the detail and intricacy and all the just everything that they put into it is pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I—I'd only—I've only been down there um, once during Christmas time, and a lot of these old uh, historic buildings that are part of Colonial Williamsburg. There's like 80 uh, historic buildings they'll handcraft these wreaths that are like, they're like colonial. So they'll have like colonial things in them. And it's just kind of fun to walk through and see all the different wreaths. And then they decorate a lot with apples and pineapples and a lot of candles and, uh, you know, little fire pots burning. It's really, really cool at Christmas time. Yeah, it's certainly, certainly worth, if you can, I know it's kind of a hard time of the year, but um, Jay, in the past years, they've actually done really well with attracting people uh, during the Christmas season to uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. Well, Jay, we've got one more. So what's the last one? Yeah, so the last one um, is, it's kind of fun, uh, the Museum of the Bible and Sight and Sound, and I'm kind of mentioning them together. Sight and Sound, it, a lot of our groups have recently experienced Sight and Sound um, because you couldn't go to theaters up in New York City, and a lot of them started trying out Sight and Sound, which we've known about for a few years, but a lot of our groups would always go up to New York to see a play. But Sight and Sound is just amazing, and uh, it's, it's biblically based. Uh, they do incredible shows that are, you know, on par or higher, I think, than a lot of the Broadway shows I've ever seen. You don't have to worry about the content. Um, it's amazing acting and sets. And then also Museum of the Bible, which a lot of our groups love. Um, both of them have come together this year to do some stuff um, for Christmas. And if you go on their websites, uh, you probably will be able to find out. They have uh, special events where they have Christmas uh, they've filmed some Christmas things going on in the Museum of the Bible where they have um, special actors. They have um, King and Country, uh, some other musical groups, and they've filmed different scenes in the Museum of the Bible. And you can watch it online. And I think, you know, some of them you may have to give a donation or pay to do it. But Sight and Sound has helped uh, do the production of it at Museum of the Bible. So it's kind of fun that these two places that a lot of our groups really love, uh, Museum of the Bible and Sight and Sound, have partnered together to make some really great uh, content that you can access, uh, you know, online or 
uh, through different media. So I would encourage our listeners to check that out. Yeah, two, two more amazing places that uh, have their focus right uh, during the Christmas season yeah, on the, the celebration of the birth of our Savior. Well, hey guys, it's time for Kronk's Corner. And uh, during this next few minutes, I, I would just like to convey a couple of, of uh, verses in God's Word and um, encourage your hearts today. So the first verse it comes from uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus is the light of the world. As, uh, he's a light that came into a, a dark place. And in verse 12, he says, uh, it says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Well, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury, the part of the temple in Jerusalem where the offerings were placed. Candles there burned to symbolize the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. Now, so in this context, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. The pillar of fire, which represented God's Shekinah glory, symbolized God's presence and his protection and guidance. And now Jesus is declaring the light of God's glory has returned. So those who call on the name of the Lord continue to have access to God's presence and protection and guidance through him. Well, Jesus's identity uh, as the light of the world isn't to be considered just a one-time acknowledgement. Rather, he is a light that's to be followed. And uh, I can think of um, a number of experiences when I've been in the dark um, and even people have been with me and maybe only one had a flashlight. Well, the others followed that person with a flashlight. And when two people are walking in the dark of night with only one flashlight, the one without the light must closely follow the one with the light. So Jesus as the light must not only be acknowledged and embraced, but he must be followed. Uh, only by following close behind him can we avoid wandering in the darkness. And in John 12, 46, he says, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. So it's time for the call to action. Well, George Washington and many of the founders had a sense of God's calling on their lives. They had learned to follow the Lord's leading rather than assume the next step in, in their journey. This meant continuing to move forward in faith. And as they went forward, they would face all kinds of unknowns and dangers. Uh, you and I can think of those things today. We face a future that we just don't know about. Uh, there's unknowns. There's risks to be taken. But trusting God, this also provided more opportunities to prove that God would be faithful to those guys in, our, in the past. God calls us onward, and we must revisit times and places from our past, but he also wants us to embrace his plans and move forward, trusting him each step of the way. And he wants us to look at our lives, not just as an adventure, which when I think about George Washington and the Revolutionary War era, Boy, uh, what an adventure and <laughs> some pretty amazing things happened. Uh, but 
he doesn't want us to look at our lives just as an adventure. God wants us also to think in the in the context that it's a series of opportunities uh, to learn new things and understand what God is doing. He created you. He knows you. And today I want to encourage you to move forward, to find the courage, to trust in God's plan and believe that you were put here for such a time as this. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. Do not forget to subscribe to Behind the Tour so you can be notified when the next episode drops and share this podcast with your friends. Also, if you have questions for us, you can email us at behindthetour, all one word, at axe-tours.com. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining me today on Behind the Tour podcast. And uh, you, you are always such a blessing to talk to. I love picking your brain. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, Jay, I, I hope to have you back. Are you, uh, you willing to hop back on a future podcast? Every once in a while, I'll be able to do that. <laughs> Good. Well, awesome, Jay. Thank you so much. Well, and everyone listening today, thanks for joining us. And as always, remember that your story, the story that God is writing, even as we speak, is part of his story and that God puts you here and now in this day and age for such a time as this. Blessings, everybody, and have a wonderful Christmas time. You have a Merry Christmas too, Aaron. Thanks, Shay.